0: Would you pray with me? Jesus Christ, word of God, bread of life. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray even as we heard your words fresh for our ears once more this morning, that you would continue to speak, continue to speak into our hearts, into our lives, into our church, into the city and the world. That life abundant and free would be known among us in this place and to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Last week, we heard Jesus' invitation to a man named Zacchaeus to come down from a tree and to have supper with him. Jesus invited himself into this man's life and was gladly welcomed. As much as we may talk about accepting Jesus into our hearts, Jesus is always the one that truly extends that invitation, and we are the ones who welcome him in. This is one of the many challenging realities that we heard Jesus present as he taught to those crowds which followed him in John 6. Now, we need some context to appreciate what's happening here because just a little while earlier in that chapter, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people with nothing more than five barley loaves and two little fish. They were ready to make him king after that, the text says. Actually, that's all it would have taken. But Jesus withdraws by himself Then he walks on water to catch up to his disciples who were in a boat, crossing the sea again. And the next day, those who had just been with him and were just ready to make him their king wake up and realize that him and his disciples are all gone, and they follow him to the other side of the sea as well. They want more. They want to be sure that maybe he isn't just king material, but actually Messiah material as well. And that is going to take a little bit more than bread. Even their ancestors ate bread in the wilderness. And this is where our reading picked up. Jesus corrects them. Moses never gave you bread. But it is the Father who gives true bread and the true bread which comes down from heaven gives life to the world. They thought they'd been happy with dinner last night. Now there's true bread from heaven to be had. Sir, give us this bread always. Keep us fed on this bread of life. By this we will surely know that you are actually the Messiah. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life, but but you have seen me, and you do not believe, Jesus says. They had just said, give us this bread always, and Jesus says, it's been standing in front of you. You've seen it, but you don't believe. They've seen him, but they do not believe. They've seen him, but they haven't really come to him, so they hunger. They've seen him, but they haven't believed in him, so they still thirst. Compared to what's on offer, never hungering, never thirsting, what these people experienced the previous night was the miraculous equivalent of a party trip. They were almost satisfied with one free meal when what is available is so much more an all you can eat buffet of life to the full. Like these people too often we've been satisfied with bread that is not true bread. The prophet Isaiah in fact diagnoses this very human condition when he asks why do you spend your money for that which is not bread. And your earnings for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then just a little while later, he explains, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We've been chasing cheap food when the things that sustain us momentarily and those things which provide us fleeting happiness are only meant to point us to the one who can sustain us forever and who offers to us boundless joy, the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, a remarkable claim which he makes, but is actually woven into his story from the very beginning. He was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of bread. He is laid in a feeding trough, food, for a hungry world. And he now says, my body is real food. Real food to at last fill the real hunger of our lives, beyond those temporary rumblings of our stomachs, to in fact quell the deepest hungers of our souls. This bread of heaven comes to us because the Father sent him, And he lives among us to do his Father's will. And what is that will except very good news to us? That Christ should lose none that have been given to him, but raise them up on the last day. That all who believe in him may have eternal life. He hasn't come to be made king, to draw clouds for his own glory, to spend the lives of others in pursuit of his own gain. He came to serve, to feed us, to nourish us into life in his Father's kingdom. But the crowd, they missed this very good news. They actually got hung up on that very first thing he said and stopped listening, grumbling because he said that he was the bread who came down from heaven. They weren't really hungry for living bread. They weren't ready to receive good news. Instead, they were judging the merits of his application for Messiah. They were listening to Jesus, how I think many of us listen to sermons, trying to evaluate it, trying to see if they agree or not, checking out what this fellow has to offer. And in that way of listening, they've tripped on the very first step now they're lost to their own reasoning. Not only is it absurd to say that he could be the bread who came down from heaven, but anyway, isn't he just Joseph's son? Don't we already know his parents? Isn't he just like any one of us? How could he say he's the bread who came from heaven? They figure they know something about him, and they're mistaken. They assume that their knowledge of his family disproves his claim. But the truth of his birth actually affirms what he says. Not merely a son of Joseph, adopted by Joseph, raised by Joseph, yes, but born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. They're right that his birth points to the truth, but it's not in the way that they figure. Hearing this crowd complain, He rebukes them. Complaining about it isn't going to help them understand it any sooner or any better. Everything the crowd knows has been of their own work, of their own merit, of their own reasoning. They receive bread because they ask for it. They receive forgiveness because they offer their sacrifices in the temple. They even believe that they can seize a man and make him their king, just like that. But they will not receive salvation apart from the will of the Father. Christ invites this crowd to realize how deeply they actually depend on God, which is no easier to accept than that he might be the bread that came from heaven, because people like to be independent. This crowd believes that if Jesus proves himself to them, then they can choose to come to him, to follow him. That if his claims merits bear out, that they'll be the first to announce him as the Messiah. But Christ makes it clear that this is not possible. Our salvation cannot be earned, cannot be won, cannot be accomplished on our own. It's not actually up to the crowd whether or not they'll follow him. Not up to how convincing a sign he can offer them, whether they'll have faith in him. It requires the Father. They shall be taught by God, Jesus continues. Faith, we're hearing, can't be learned by people, from people. Though we may have very excellent examples of lives of faith, we must learn faith from God. The only way to the Father is the Son. And Jesus tells us the only way to come to the Son is that the Father draws us to Him. Not all are taught by God, but any who do come to believe in Jesus, all who do have this faith, have been taught by God, because that's the only way to receive Him. Now, I've taught enough membership and baptism classes at Knox to know that this is the part where some of us have already been grumbling at least a little bit. We don't like anything that sounds like that forbidden word in churches predestination, right? Like, that's not okay. We must be drawn by the Father. How can Jesus say something like that? I have free will. I have the right to choose for myself what I believe and what I will follow. I'm a rational person, and I am responsible for making the best decisions for my life. To this, all I can say is that we are drawn by love. Nothing else could draw us. Reason cannot, though there is much in the gospel which speaks to our reason. Reason alone cannot inspire belief. Some are intellectually compelled by Christ, but have not come to him. Fear cannot draw us to belief. Though fear may at times remind us of our need for God, it just as often causes us to hide from God than to seek him. Many fear the divine, but have not found the sheltering wings of Jesus. Pleasure cannot draw us to God, though there is depth of joy in his kingdom, because too often we find satisfaction in those fleeting pleasures that fade, and we forget what is eternal. It is only love which brings us to God's self, a love which we do not earn, a love which we cannot generate in the heart of God, but a love which will not let us go, for God indeed is love. God still sends bread from heaven, not like the manna in the wilderness where those who ate it still died, but in Jesus Christ, who gives his flesh for the life of the world, Jesus offers himself to us this day that we might feed on him. And in him, no real nourishment, even the fullness of life. Then there's this dispute, which may actually be a sign of progress. Because for there to be a dispute, there has to be two different sides, two different opinions at least. So some understand what Jesus is saying, and others still do not. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, if there were an opportunity in the story for Jesus to walk something back or to clarify what he meant, this was probably it. Jesus could have said, don't worry, it's not literal. He could have expounded upon the spiritual meaning of what he was saying. But instead, once more, Jesus presses in to this very strange invitation. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And as Myrna was reading, I wondered in this section, could he have said flesh and blood more often? It's like he knew what was bothering them, and he just kept saying that same thing over and over. It really must be the truth. In essence, in a way, Jesus proclaims, I tell you the truth, it's worse than you feared. It's not just that you will die like your ancestors. In fact, it is that you are already dead. You are already dead. You have no life in you, Jesus tells them, because only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I will raise them on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Far from walking it back, Jesus seems to have doubled down. They have no life in them, and the only way to have life is to be drawn to the one who offers himself as bread for the world. We might remember the crowd's earlier eagerness. Sir, always give us this bread. But here, Jesus makes plain that we need it only once. The verbs to eat and to drink are in a tense which is eroist. It's not ongoing. It happens once. We partake of Christ one time, and from then on, we abide in him, and he is in us, and we have eternal life in us. To partake of Christ is to be invited to the Father's kingdom and to know life forevermore. And I don't know how you're feeling at this point in this heavy passage of Scripture, but this has all been too much for most of the crowd. This is a hard teaching, they say. Who can accept it? They're still hung up on Joseph's son claiming to be bread from heaven. They're still caught in the mechanics of eating flesh and drinking blood to have heard anything about the Father's will or the drawing love of eternal life. Being aware of their complaint, Jesus asks them plainly, does this offend you? It does. They are blind, and they are deaf. They have hardened hearts, and they're dead in their sin. And to the dead, life seems preposterous. To the passing away, what is new is a threat. To the one who has only ever known chains, the promise of freedom is unimaginable. To the one who has only wept bitterly, joy is beyond reach. To people who rely on themselves exclusively, the need for God to act is too terrifying to fathom. It is absurd. It is offensive, this thing that Jesus suggests. But it is only the absurd which will rouse a still sleeping humanity from our waking death. And it's only that which offends the sensibility of sin and the patterns of slavery, which will at last give true freedom. You see, if it were an easy thing that Jesus said to them, well, they would have heard it before. They would have tried it before. If it were not a strange saying he offered to them, it wouldn't have been worth marking at all. And if the sum of the Christian faith were to try to be a good person, we would not need Jesus, and we ought not to be gathered here. We can hear that call anywhere else. If the possibility to save ourselves by our good works was on offer, I think we would gladly welcome the challenge and could go on with our lives in much the same way as our neighbors and our co-workers even as these first would-be disciples but these things are not the truth very truly he says to us this day also unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you This indeed is the will of his Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and he will raise them up on the last day. It's nothing we can do, nothing we can reason, nothing we can earn or accomplish or merit. It is only the will of the Father. It's only the gift of God. It is heavenly bread for a hungry world. The invitation of Christ is that we would take that bread and nourish our souls. That we would feed on him for the deepest longings of our hearts. This is a hard teaching because truth is hard to confront. And it's difficult to accept. Following Jesus is strange if you didn't know that. It's off-putting even. Who can accept it? The call of God on our lives is a hard thing to reconcile with the way that the world would shape and fashion our lives for us. And you know what? That's actually good, because people have normal all around them, and they're dead. We're used to death. We're used to decay. We're comfortable in the grave. But Christ invites us to know life, even if it offends us even if it pains us, even if we need to wake up to the reality that the values which have shaped so much of our living have been poison to our souls. Because that truth, offered in Jesus' body and his blood, lived out in the flesh before our very eyes, is the only thing which is going to expel the sickness within us and raise us to life with him. You haven't left, but as you might imagine, everybody else did. Everybody leaves. They can't face this truth. They can't accept this teaching. They will not be taught by God. They have not yet come to Christ or received the bread of life, which will satisfy their true hungers. Everyone is gone except for the twelve don't they want to go away too? And Simon Peter answers for them, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's answer. It's almost as if he says, look, if there were somewhere else to go, we'd go there. If there was someone else to follow, we'd follow them. But to whom can we go? There's no one else. You have the words of life. You satisfy our greatest hunger. These who can say this thing have been drawn by the Father have truly come to Christ. They have eaten of him. These know the promise of life forevermore. What else could they want? Where else could they go? There is nothing else that will satisfy us but the bread of life which came down from heaven. There is no salve for our souls but the one who is life itself. He is unlike anything else we've tried to use to satiate our desires to soothe ourselves, to remedy our disordered and chaotic lives. His ways are not what we have known, not what we would try on our own. His teachings are the words of God, and though they be hard, they bring with them life and freedom, satisfaction and every good thing. To who else could we go but to him who invites us to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, that we might be one with him and enjoy his life forevermore. Truly, he alone has the words of eternal life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Maybe this morning you're feeling like there's hard things in this. Like there's a way of death which is comfortable to you that Jesus is calling you away from. And it's going to be difficult. And if that's you, I want to invite you to reflect on that invitation of Christ. The offensive thing Jesus is saying which challenges that way of death in you. Respond to him. Come to him. Find life in him. And if that's not what you are hearing... I'm sure in this season as we prepare for Alpha, there are people you could be praying for that they would be drawn by the Father to come to Christ and that in Jesus they would find the fullness of life. So wherever you're at, whether it's for you or for someone else, I want to invite you to this time of reflection and to prayer to know that God draws people to his Son and that in his Son is life forevermore.